turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 for our scripture reading this morning. We want to read verses 13 through 23. Focus of our message will be on verses 19 to 23. We want to get that in its context. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 13 down through verse 23. So verse 13 begins with the word he, and that's referring to God the Father. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, And are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Lord, that is blessing to the reading of his word. Let's have a brief prayer. And so open our eyes, dear Lord, to see that which you have for us today. Open our hearts, dear Lord, to have a deeper love and appreciation for the gracious work of our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the life of me to this day, I really don't know what made Vince and Roland so much an enemy against me. I was in seventh grade, and um, one day after school, I was walking home, and these two guys just ambushed me. They had some other guys with them, but these two it was just these two guys who were the instigators and took all the action. Roland came up behind me. Roland, okay, this was seventh grade. Roland probably should have been in at least ninth grade, judging from the size of the guy. But he came up behind me, big guy, not only tall and big, but big, okay? He came up behind me, and he grabbed my arms behind me and held my arms like this, and Vince is facing me. Vince was a little guy. Vince was a shorter guy. He was shorter than I was. But he was a mean kid, you know, one of those just small and nasty kind of a kid. And he's, he's looking at me with, with anger, and his fists are clenched, and Roland's telling him, Roland is telling him, punch him, punch him, get him in his stomach, come on, punch him. And I'm like, what in the world did I do? I mean, why are you, why are you wanting to do this? Just don't like the way you look or something. I, I just I really didn't know. Well, he 
gave a punch or two, and then that satisfied them and gratified them, and they went on their way. I never took Taekwondo or karate or anything like that, or maybe I could have gotten out of that crazy thing. Well, anyway, the next day after school, they tried a repeat of the same thing. Fortunately, I got away from them before uh, they saw me leaving the school. I was far enough ahead of them that when I saw them coming after me, and Roland being the big guy that he was, he couldn't quite keep up with me, so I was able to run down the hill and get myself to safety before they caught me. Well, a few months after that, our family moved away, and uh, Vince and Roland still come to my mind today when I think about unreconciled enemies. But then there's Tim O'Malley. Again, I'm not sure why, but for some reason, I, I must have been such a mean kid or such a nasty guy or something. I don't know what, but uh, he, this was sixth grade, and uh, I'm, again, walking home from school. It was probably late fall, early winter. It wasn't yet snowy, but it was cold enough to be wearing a coat. I'm walking home from school, and uh, Tim decided that it would be a good day to beat me up. So he's chasing me down the road and, or down the sidewalk, and he finally caught up with me, tackled me, got me down on the ground, got on top of me, and he started flailing on me. I tried to get him off and all that kind of stuff. He rips my coat and lands a couple of punches before he finally gets up and, and has a few choice words and sends me on my way, and I ran home. And when I got home, uh, my dad found out about, about what had happened, and he especially was unhappy about the coat, I think, because it was a new coat. But nevertheless, um, Dad decided to take action, and he got a hold of Tim O'Malley's dad on the phone, and they had a brief conversation, and the next thing I know, he says, come on, let's go. And we get in the car, and we drive over uh, down a few blocks to Tim's house. Sitting there in the living room, our fathers talked back and forth a minute, and then uh, Tim's father talked to Tim, uh, and we were all in the same room. Tim's father talked to him, and I don't remember all the conversation, but I do remember when all was said and done, Tim apologized to me, said he was sorry, and uh, asked if I would forgive him, and I forgave him, and we became reconciled. And we were reconciled on account of an effective mediator. In our text this morning, we find a further reason that Jesus should have preeminence in our life. We've already seen a few of those a couple of weeks ago now. We, we had Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, so it's been three Sundays since we've been in the book of Colossians. So just as a reminder of the reasons we've already seen why at the end of verse 18, Paul says, in all things he, Christ, may have the preeminence. He should have the preeminence in all things because, verse 16 says, He created all things. By Him all things were created. The end of the verse, all things were created through Him and for Him. He should have preeminence because He created all things. Verse 17 begins by telling us that He should have preeminence because He preceded all things. He is before all things. The next part of the verse, 17, tells us that he should have preeminence because he sustains all things. By him, or in him, all things consist. And then in verse 18, he should have preeminence in all things because he, preside, he presides over all things, uh, particularly in the church. True universally, but verse 18 focuses on the church. He is the head of the body, 
the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. But then notice verse 19 continues with the word for, because there's a further explanation. There are, in verses 19 to 23, there are two more reasons why Jesus Christ should have preeminence in all things and preeminence in your life and in mine. First of all, in verse 20, because he reconciles all things. But then in verses 21 and following, because he reconciles you. He reconciles you personally. Now, just as a refresher, if, uh, if you need it to remind us of what reconciliation is, reconciliation simply means that two or more parties that have been in conflict or have been estranged are brought back together in harmony with one another. It may be the result of a mediator, it may be the, the um, initiative of one party or the other, but two parties who were estranged are brought back together in harmony with one another. And this is what Christ effects. In Him, all things are reconciled. In Christ, you are reconciled, which strongly suggests, does it not, that it's needed. If Christ does this, then it means it's needed. We need to be reconciled to God. And verse 20, verse 20 says, you know, look, all things, everything, all creation needs to be reconciled to Him. Verse 20 begins and says, by Him, that is, by Christ, to reconcile all things to Himself. God the, God, the Godhead is reconciling all things to himself by Jesus Christ. All creation needs to be reconciled. And notice it's interesting, isn't it, that verse 16 tells us that all things were created by Christ. And now in verse 20, it tells us that all those things that Christ has created are going to be reconciled to God by Him. All things, all creation needs to be reconciled. Things in he- on earth and things in heaven or in the heavens. That's referencing, that's referencing all that has been created, all in this material world that we see, all, all uh, material stuff, you know, the 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 trees, the the land, the birds, the animals, all of that created stuff. All of man needs to be reconciled, but also all that is in the heavens. That would mean the stellar universe needs to be reconciled to him. All are estranged from him and therefore need to be reconciled. You see, and, and when, uh, when it talks about the things that are in the heavens, that would also include the spirit beings, because all things were created by him. Even the spirit beings have been created by God. And the spirit world suffered when the angels fell, and there's been spiritual conflict ever since. The human race became alienated from God when Adam fell, and the material world itself was affected in that rebellion against, against God on the part of man and perhaps also on the part of the spirit beings. 
and all wait for the ultimate reconciliation. Romans chapter 8, verse 20 says, The creation was subjected to futility. And we know, he goes on to say, Paul in verse 22 of Romans 8, we know that the whole creation groans and labors in birth pangs together until now. And that estrangement has brought with it some very negative effects. And those effects are profoundly evident, aren't they? I mean, the entire creation is out of order. There are spiritual battles that are going on right this very minute, and they have been for millennia. Spiritual battles between the demonic forces and the angelic forces. You say, well, what, what do those things look like? Well, we don't exactly know altogether what they look like. We have very, very few, but a sufficient uh, pulling back of the curtain, if you will, in, in, in Scripture. Uh, in the book of Daniel, for example, we have, the, we, we have some insight when uh, the, the angel comes to Daniel, the angelic being comes to Daniel and explains that he was hindered because of the angel of another territory was withholding, was with, withstanding him. There's this, there's this uh, the spirit world conflict that involves the forces of the wicked one and the angelic forces and those spiritual battles that are going on beyond the veil, behind the curtain that we cannot see, they definitely, though, are played out on a global stage. We, we don't really grasp, do we, that behind all of the conflicts that we see in the news, those conflicts that we see in the news are generated by conflicts that are going on behind the scenes that we cannot see. Now, don't ask me to explain all of that and how all the details of that work, uh, but that seems to be the indication of Scripture. So there are spiritual battles that are going on, and uh, the, the estrangement from God explains those spiritual battles. It also explains the moral chaos that we see in the human condition preponderance of perversion, the confusion of, of minds and hearts, the violence between people, the hostilities between nations, the moral chaos is the effect of that estrangement. So too are the natural disasters and the difficulties in the material world and even in the universe. Astronomers look up into the heavens and they see they see. They see cataclysm. They see, they see death. You call them these black holes and things. Like, well, well what are those, where do those come from and why do they exist? And why is there such conflict even in the universe? Because all creation is estranged and needs to be reconciled. All creation needs to be reconciled, but, but, but Paul's main thrust here in this passage is not the reconciliation that needs to take place with all of creation, but the reconciliation that needs to take place with you and with me. We need to be reconciled to God, as verse 21 says. He says, and you, you now, he, Christ, has reconciled. You need to be reconciled to God. Why is that? Because, he says... Look in the middle of verse 21. You are alienated 
and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Now, would you hold your finger here and turn to Ephesians chapter 2? In Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses, Paul actually kind of fleshes out more of this, uh, of this alienation, of this estrangement from God. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. Why is it that you and I need to be reconciled to God? We need to be reconciled to God, Paul tells us, for three reasons. We are alienated, we are enemies in our mind, and we are filled with wicked works. We are estranged from Him in alienation. In in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and following, look at how that alienation is described. In verse 1, he describes it as being dead in trespasses and sins. God is life. We are dead in trespasses and sins. The last part of verse 2, he describes us as being the sons of disobedience. Again, get the idea, the description of being estranged from God, alienated from God. We are sons of disobedience. We are children of wrath, the end of verse 3 says. Children of wrath. Now, now, you think about those last two images. Children of disobedience, uh, sons of disobedience, children of wrath, that is, subject to the outpouring of, the, of wrath from the, from the Father, from the Heavenly Father. Are, are those not uh, descriptors of what we experience in human life, in our human relationships, in our family relationships? Children of disobedience. Father, parent tells a child, do thus, don't do this. Child does just the opposite. What is that what is, what is the effect of that? That, if, that? The effect of that is some measure of alienation, some measure of estrangement. Uh, and the more that persists, the more the relationship gets strained and the more estranged the relationship gets. Jesus told a, and gave an example of that in the parable of the prodigal son. Now, there was already an alienation in the mind and the heart of that younger son before he asked for his inheritance and went and spent it. But off he went. And when he went in his rebellion against his father and all that his father stood for, he is distant from his father. Sons of disobedience. Children of wrath, that is, deserving the punishment that their rebellion, uh, their, their rebellion brings. And the thing we want to we get here regarding this alienation is that it is not just a passive distance. Like, you know, we're, we're alien from being Germans because we're just we don't we don't live anywhere near Germany. We don't live in Germany, and so we're aliens. That's that's a passive alienation. That's a passive distance. That's not what that's not what Paul is talking about. Our alienation is not just a passive distance from God, but it is an active hostility towards Him. We are alienated, and um, in Colossians one, the other the next word Paul uses is that we are enemies, but. But he qualifies that. He says, you are enemies in your mind. Enemies in your mind. 
does that mean? What's he talking about here? That has to do with your disposition. In your disposition toward God, in your unreconciled state, in your natural state, in your disposition toward Him, you are an enemy. You're an enemy. You have a hostile disposition toward God and His Word. Here in Ephesians 2, verse 3, Paul describes it this way. He says, we also once conducted ourselves... This is our manner of living, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. Notice how those those descriptions of conducting ourselves in the desires of our flesh and and fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, that those have to do with our disposition toward God, enemies in our mind hostile toward the way and the will the ways and the will of God. Now let's get very practical about this. Let's just think about it on a very a very practical and tangible level. What is the disposition of the unconverted person when confronted with the the biblical truth of an exclusive savior? That there is only one way to heaven, to the Father, and that way is Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. What is the average response to such an exclusive statement of access to heaven? Is it not one of hostility? What is the average unconverted mind's response to the declaration of the reality of a real hell. You wonder? Get yourself a sandwich board. Go out on the street where a lot of people pass by, and on one side of it say, there is a real, literal, eternal hell. And on the other side say, you are going there. How many people do you think would say, oh, thank you for that wonderful message. I really needed to hear that today. You're such a kind person to tell me that. No, the the disposition toward that truth is one of hostility. Or, to be very contemporary, proclaim the fact that there are two divinely created sexes, male and male and female, and that's it. And that is a biological reality that is not changed because of something you think about. And if you happen to think about, well, I may be biologically one, but I think I'm the other. Do you not see that that is in itself hostility against the God who created you the way you are? Oh, listen, this is, the, this is the natural state. And I think we need to be careful, by the way, when we think about all of this stuff that's going on in our world uh, with, with, this, uh, with this expression of the enemy of the, in the mind coming out in forms of you know, gender dys, dysphoria and uh, you know, the, heteros, the, the 
same-sex marriages and all that kind of stuff. I think we need to be careful that we don't, ex- we don't express an, an anger and a rage and a hostility toward people who are, who are expressing that what's coming out of their mind, but we instead realize why it's coming out. It's because of their natural state. It's because of the natural condition. And the natural condition of such individuals is one that they are enemies in their mind, enemies of God. And they need to be reconciled to Him. If only they could be reconciled to Him. If only they would be reconciled to Him. Then they would realize that that this, this, this sin, this is sin, and this doesn't please the Father. And something needs to give. The Father isn't going to give. I need to change. And we could go on with that. But by the way, let's understand that this disposition, this enemies in our mind, uh, identifies us as sinners. He's calling out our sin. We are, we are enemies in our mind. And then I want you to notice that the third description in Colossians chapter 1 of our alienation, of our estrangement from God, has to do with our actions. We are estranged from Him because of our actions against Him. We are enemies in our mind by wicked works, Paul says, by wicked works. Now, I want you to get the connection, get the relationship here. The disposition of our soul is evil that is evidenced by wicked works. In other words, the way to understand this is we are sinners. We we sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. In the very root of ourselves, we are sinners, and therefore, the result is our disposition is sin. We are sinners by disposition, and the result is that shows itself, it evidences itself by wicked works. We sin. We sin. The cause of my sinfulness is not my evil deeds. My evil deeds come from my sinfulness. That's what Paul is talking about. Now, really, what Paul is What Paul is describing here is what theologians call total depravity. That is, sin, watch, put this all together, sin has killed every part of you. It's killed your mind, your desires, your will, and your actions. In our natural state, the state that needs, because, because of that natural state, we need to be reconciled to God. That natural state, we are totally depraved. We are dead in trespasses and sins. You and I need to be reconciled to God. Now, going back to Colossians chapter 1, please note that we can be, we can be reconciled to God, and we can be because of God's gracious initiative. 
verses 19 and 20, you put them together. It pleased uh, in my, uh, my, I have the New King James and it has in italics here. It says it pleased, in, then in italics, the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell. I think this should better be translated in this way. It pleased the Godhead, the triune God, that in Jesus, the Son of God, all the fullness should dwell. Now, what that, now watch, what that tells us is that God has taken the initiative. The triune God has taken the initiative to reconcile you and me as sinners to a holy and righteous God. God has taken the initiative. That tells us of His grace. He is gracious. And what we don't want to miss in this passage of Colossians chapter 1 is the unilateral work of God in your salvation. It dominates the text. For example, go back to verse 12. Look at verse 12 again. Giving thanks to the Father who has, He, the Father, has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. What did you do to qualify yourself to be a partaker of the inheritance? What did you do? Nada. Not a thing. Nothing. By the way, interestingly, last night I, was, I, was, I watched a video that um, critiqued an Easter, I don't even know what you'd call it, but it was an Easter program. It was an Easter musical at a church in uh, Oklahoma. I think it was in Tulsa. It was absolutely horrid. It was horrid. It was demonic. And I don't even want to take the time to describe how bad it was. But, but in the, um, it, at the end of the musical, the pastor got up to, pro, to preach a gospel message, to, you know, to, try to, to try to somehow give the gospel in this thing. Part of the, apparently, part of the message was okay, but in the course of that message, he said, and I quote, you, you can go to heaven, you can receive, I, I'm not quoting this part, you can, be, you, can, you can be saved and you can go to heaven because you have worth and are worthy of God saving you. No. No. You are not worthy of being saved. Why not? Because you are a sinner, estranged from God alienated from Him. God doesn't save you because you're worthy of being saved. Otherwise, that puts the merit on you, doesn't it? Doesn't that, doesn't that mean you're the one that is so, uh, so deserving of that which God does? No, listen, what we need to understand is the grace of God. It is God in His grace has taken the initiative to reconcile sinners to Himself. Verse 13 goes on to say, It is He that has delivered us from the power of darkness, and He has conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. The fact of the matter is, in every, every reference to reconciliation in the New Testament, reconciliation between God and man, it is always God who takes the initiative. In Romans 5.10, for example, Paul writes, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. 
2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Reconciliation, Kent Hughes says this way, he says, Reconciliation to God is an explicitly one-sided process, end quote. It is a gracious one-sided process. You and I can be reconciled to God because God has graciously taken the initiative to reconcile us to Himself. Also notice, we can be reconciled to God because of, of the glorious person of Jesus Christ. Verse 19, again, as I suggested, it could better be translated that God, the Godhead, in all His fullness upon Jesus was pleased to dwell. We see this uh, clarified in chapter 2, verse 9. Look at chapter 2, verse 9 of Colossians. There it says, for in Him, that is in Christ, you see it, look look back right at verse 8, in Him refers right back to Christ, for in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And here's what, here's, Here's what, I want to take a minute with this because I want us to catch the glory of Christ in His person. Each person in the triune Godhead, in the Trinity, each person, Father, Son, and Spirit, is pleased to ensure that in the incarnate Son, All that makes God, God, will be found. The Father, Son, and the Spirit are pleased to make sure that in the incarnate Son is found all that makes God to be God. So, the Father, for example, the Father is pleased that the incarnate Son would be fully God while being fully man. Jesus, the Son, is pleased as God, fully God, to humble Himself and take on flesh and be fully man. The Spirit, God the Spirit, is pleased to enable, to empower, and to direct the man, Christ Jesus, so that in the carrying out of the public life and ministry of the incarnate Son, the Godhead, all that God is, is displayed in Him. Jesus is God the Son. In Him all the fullness dwells. He is God the Son. Jesus is Jesus, the man, who possesses that fullness of God. Jesus, who is God the Son, Jesus, who is fully man, is therefore the... Now watch, get this, this is critical to understand. He is therefore the God-man, which makes him exclusively qualified to be the mediator between God and man. Just as Paul wrote in 1 Timothy, one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Which, 
brings up the third reason why you can be reconciled to God. Because without this third reason, you couldn't be. You can be reconciled to God because of His gracious initiative. You can be reconciled to God because of Christ's glorious person. Thirdly, you can be reconciled to God because of Christ's sacrificial work. It's brought out at the end of verse 21 and into verse 22. You, yet now He, Christ, has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death. Christ's sacrificial work that brings about reconciliation between God and man, that, that reconciliation work demands, notice it demands a physical sacrifice. Christ offered Himself in the body of His flesh. We just got done reflecting upon this, didn't we, with, with uh, the, the Good Friday, the Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. It was a literal physical death of Christ. Reconciliation is possible because of the physical sacrifice of Christ. Christ offered that demanded physical sacrifice in the body of His flesh. But reconciliation also demands a total sacrifice. He had to die. He couldn't just, it wouldn't be sufficient for him just to go before Pilate and say, yeah, you know, here I am. I'm offering myself to you to do anything you want to with me. And Pilate say, okay, well, I don't see anything wrong with you. I don't see a problem with you. I don't see you doing anything deserving of death. I'm just going to give you 39 lashes. I'm going to take you out there and whip you. Takes him out there, gives him the 39 lashes and says, okay, we're done. Have a good day. Everybody go home. Reconciliation would not occur. It required, it required that he offer himself in the offering of his flesh unto death, unto death. Reconciliation is... Reconciliation demands not only a physical sacrifice, but a total sacrifice. And that was the whole thrust of the, of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And particularly, think about that Passover lamb that was sacrificed. It had to die. And that Passover lamb was just a picture of the Passover lamb, Christ our Passover lamb. Who could reconcile us to the... Godhead, through his, in the body of his flesh, through death. Reconciliation is possible. You can be reconciled to God. And then notice in verses 21 to 23 also that we are reconciled. Okay, we need to be, we can be, and verses 21 to 23 show us we are reconciled to God. In other words, the reconciliation through Christ is effective. Look at verses 21 and 2 again. You, he says, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. In this reconciliation that is so effective, through Christ Jesus, He overcomes your sinful past, whatever that sinful past was. You once were, He says, yet now has He reconciled you through death. He overcomes your sinful past through 
his death on that cross. And that reconciliation is so effective and so complete that not only does Christ in his sacrifice on the cross overcome your sinful past, but he secures your sanctified future. Look at the end of verse 22 again. He does this to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. As a reconciled, as a reconciled child of God, Jesus will present you holy in his sight, cleansed from all sin and separated entirely and completely and wholly unto God. He will present you blameless in his sight, without any blemish whatsoever. I don't know about you, but I can't hardly imagine what that's like. Can you? Or are you already there? I didn't think so. But more than that, he presents you not only holy and blameless, but above reproach. Above reproach. You know what that means? That means that there is nothing chargeable against you. This is how he will present you to himself, without anything chargeable against you. Even as Paul writes in Romans 8, verses 33 and 34, he he asks this question. Who shall bring anything against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen, who is even at the right hand of God before the throne of God above, who also makes intercession for us. Now, here's a wonderful thing about this. What, what Paul is telling us here in Colossians 1 is that, is that in reconciling us to God, Jesus, Jesus' reconcilia- reconciliating work is so effective that he individualizes, he makes personal the purpose that Christ has for his bride, the church. What am I getting at? In, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, Paul talks about the, uh, Paul talks about the um, glorious future of the church, that Jesus will present to himself the church, his bride, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Why is it that the church will be presented to Christ himself in such a glorious way, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and without blemish. Why? Because Jesus Christ, in his reconciling work, reconciling us enemies and estranged aliens from God, reconciling us to the Godhead, that his work is so effective on a personal level that it is profoundly effective on a corporate level. The whole church will be presented that way to Christ because each individual believer in Christ will be presented that way as well. We need to be reconciled to God. We can be reconciled to God. And that reconciliation through Christ is absolutely effective. But here's the question that verse 23 takes us to. Are you? Are you reconciled to God? Verse 23 begins with 
A very powerful little two-letter word, doesn't it? If. If. You were alienated. He has reconciled you. If indeed. If indeed. Let's look at the verse as a whole and then notice two conditions to that reconciliation. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Notice these two conditions for reconciliation to actually be effective. One is you must hear the gospel. You must hear the gospel. How shall they call upon him in whom they have not heard? How shall they hear except there be a preacher? How shall anybody preach except they be sent? How blessed are the feet of those who bring the gospel. You need to hear the gospel. God uses someone to share that gospel with you, either in a preaching service like this and one like next week, or in a personal one-on-one encounter or through a gospel tract or some way. God uses someone to share the gospel with you. You hear the gospel. And in hearing the gospel, you don't just throw it away. You don't dismiss it. You say, ah, it's for somebody else. You don't, get all, you don't get all upset and bent out of shape because he said there's a real hell and you're going there unless you trust Christ and Christ is the only way. That doesn't all, none of that bothers you. Instead, you, you're, you're riveted to that. You hear it and you believe it and you receive it for yourself. And in hearing the gospel, believing and receiving it for yourself, you now have, as Paul describes it here in the middle of verse 23, the hope of the gospel. What is that hope? It is that hope of eternal life in which God, in which God who cannot lie, promised to give. Well, in order to be reconciled to God, you need to hear the gospel. But secondly, in order to be reconciled to God, you need to persevere in the faith. As you notice, that's how the verse begins. If indeed you continue in the faith. J.I. Packer, in commenting on this verse, he put it this way. He says, the only proof of past conversion is present convertedness. If you continue, continue on in the faith. Perhaps you're here this morning and say, well, you know, I remember when I was a kid, I made a I made a profession, I, I prayed a prayer, and I asked God to save me. Let me ask you something. Do you believe Christ is the only way of salvation? Well, no, I kinda, I've kind of got away from that. I think there are other ways, you know, now that I look at other things. You have not continued in the faith. You are not converted. You are not converted. You have not continued in the faith. You say, well, um, as Paul goes on to say, you're not, you, you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. You don't move away from the faith. Now, here's the thing. To the person who is genuinely converted, to the person who has been reconciled to God, both of these are a given. They remain steadfast in the faith. It doesn't mean you never have any doubts about some things. No, that's not what Paul is talking about. It doesn't mean that you got it all figured out. It doesn't mean you have, you, have, you have worked through all of the little nuances of doctrine and theology and all the rest of that. But, but look at the basics. Look at the basics. You continue in the faith, in the hope of the gospel which you heard, the good news of Jesus Christ. 
that you as a sinner, estranged and alienated from God, Jesus Christ will save your soul. Jesus Christ will reconcile you to him through his death on the cross as resurrection from the tomb. One writer put it this way, those who have been reconciled will persevere in faith and obedience. They will not defect from the gospel, but will remain solidly upon Christ, the only foundation. It's not talking about a sinless perfection. It's not meaning that you'll never, you'll never slip or you'll never yield to any temptation or anything like that. What he's talking about is you will never, you will never deny Christ. You will never deny the gospel of Christ if you are genuinely reconciled to Him. So are you? Are you reconciled to God? Have you, have you seen this oh-so-critical need for yourself that you, you personally, individually, you need to be reconciled to God? Have you heard and received the good news message that you can be reconciled to God through Christ? Are you? Or do you need to be reconciled to Him today? If so, oh, my friend, do you see yourself in this passage? An an enemy in your mind by wicked works? Do you see your need? Even in the quietness of these next couple of moments, you can cry out to the Savior who will save those who call. Call upon Him. Be reconciled to God today. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, how we are grateful for this gracious means of reconciliation unto you. Oh, Lord, what dreadful condition we find ourselves in, lost and undone, enemies in our mind demonstrating our alienation from you by our wicked works. But oh, how gracious, oh, how gracious the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, in the quietness of this moment, if there is one who recognizes his need today of being reconciled to you, oh, may he call upon you. May he call upon you. Say, oh, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Reconcile me unto yourself through Christ today. This I pray in Jesus' name.